Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I am your host, James DiPietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I am proud to welcome Katrina Fry, the founder and CEO of Pasadena-based independent music label, Loretta Records. In the ever-changing music industry, Loretta's mission is to create a sustainable platform for its emerging artists by breaking them into what Katrina calls the new radio, television, and film. She grew up in a diverse and religious household in San Luis Obispo and found her people when she started taking photography and art classes. She attended Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego and received her bachelor's degree in visual arts and photography while expanding her knowledge of the world through study abroad programs that took her to places like India and Europe. With a keen interest in the business side of music, she earned her master's degree in arts management from the Claremont Graduate University's Drucker School, all the while serving as the manager of the band Urban Rescue and working, among other places, for the Pasadena Conservatory of Music. Before founding Loretta Records in early 2020, Katrina started what is arguably the greatest named company ever, Mischief Managed, a business development company that seeks to bridge the art and business worlds was an adjunct professor at California Baptist University and founded and still serves as a principal consultant at Culture Shift Collective, a group of educators dedicated to facilitating hard conversations about diversity and equality. The music industry is famously a harsh place for artists where one-hit wonders are all too common. With Loretta Records, Katrina is trying to change that. She is using all the tools she has learned in and around this crazy business to build a home for artists to develop long-term and sustainable careers through education, patience, and hard work. To date, Loretta Records has produced well over 50 songs across various channels, and its artists produce wonderfully engaging music that one can get lost in. In this conversation, we talk about Katrina's thoughts on music and the industry, what's next for her in Loretta Records, and what she's currently listening to. So, without further delay, my conversation with Loretta Records, Katrina Fry. Katrina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, James. I'm excited. So we're going to talk about Loretta Records and the amazing work that you're doing there. But before that, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your upbringing and the role that the arts and music played in it. I had the privilege of being born and raised in a little town called San Luis Obispo, which locals around here might know or driven through. It is a great place to be from, but you know, you got to leave. You got to leave at like 17, 18 and experience the whole big wide world. But it was an incredible place because there weren't major freeways. There were no major franchises. You really had to get to know people. And that was the currency of life there. And so it's something that's been the through line of all the work I do. And also what saved my life, honestly, there was in high school, I got to go to some undergraduate courses through the community college there in photography. And so that I opened my mind beyond, beyond. And I got to meet the group of weirdos that I didn't know I was missing, which are art students and art kids, and really, really, really fell in love there. And then had a strong influence that whole time I was being raised too by my dad with music. And even my mom would play Stevie Wonder on Saturdays for cleaning day. So I just knew, I knew I wanted to always be around music. I knew I wanted to be around art kids. So I went down to San Diego um, to a small school called Point Loma, and I studied visual arts there. And right around my last year there, I 
started dating this guy that was in a band and I was like, there's no way this is real. You know, this is like what you, what you hear about on a book or TV or something. This can't be his real life. And I went to a couple shows with him and saw that he was actually making money. And then he didn't know what to do with that or how to pay people. And I happened to know those things through entrepreneurship of my family and working internships and a couple different jobs throughout my time in college. And so I just started writing the books. And I quickly became a business manager for that band, which it was a 10-year run of being the business manager for that band. And I learned everything I needed to know in the music business because I got to wear every hat. You know, the best part of the music business, two things, there's no rules. <laughs> no one lives their life the same way. No one gets to the same end point the same way. And then the second thing is that really there's no titles. Like you get to create these things, this idea of even manager, tour manager, business manager. Those are things that we're are evolving. They're not like stagnant things. So I really got to move with them and change them and got to see my capacity and my experience, my expertise. I really was led into a whole world. It was a beautiful thing. Really hard work, long hours, not making much money, but there was money there. And I think for those 10 years, um, the last 10 years of my life, just seeing the transactions happen and how many people were in the workforce behind the curtain you know, I always say it takes 3,000 people to get one Beyonce on stage. So like I, I saw that in action, it's not at that scale or, or dollar bills, but you know, at our scale, it was just incredible to be on tours and to see how many humans it took to get people on stage. And I really have always been fascinated by that. I want to empower artists so that they understand they're running a business and they're the CEO once they step on stage. Everyone accounts to them. Everyone's following their lead. And when they're off stage, it's actually the same. So they actually need to conduct themselves as a great business person, a great CEO. And then I like to be those support that make sure people get paid on time. People are paid well. There's, you know, mental health checks in, check-ins. People are just thinking through the whole process to live a long, sustainable life as, you know, in the arts. So that's kind of how I ended up here, really, um, but, you know, a lot of stuff in between. But yeah, that's that's the that's the short and skinny of it. We were talking about this before we started recording and you said you've lived uh, nine different lives and then you've, you've explained a couple of them. And over the course of the next couple of minutes, we'll, we'll explore the other six. Throughout your career, you've been involved with organizations dedicated to human rights and equality. Who are some of your earliest influences or mentors that helped shape your thinking about equality and social justice? Yeah, that's a great question. It would definitely be my parents um, were probably one of the first people. They volunteered with the homeless in the town that we lived in. There was one homeless shelter. And then my dad actually ended up taking shifts and hours there at that homeless shelter. And then the second largest influence in my life were probably my siblings. You know, I was ha also was raised with the privilege of a gay brother, uh, you know, an out gay brother. And there were just multiple times in life where I thought he already understood so much more in life than a lot of people who are caged and not free. And the freedom at which he lived, I just wanted to pursue. Whether I was, you know, part of the LGBT team or an ally, I knew that this was something I, I needed in my life. And then, of course, finally, 
I'm interracial. So I've had to experience what the lack of equality looks like. I get judged very quickly. I'm, you know, in spaces where I can't be black enough. I'm in spaces where I can't be white enough and everything in between. And so I think for me, a lot of my my work and professional life pour over from that personal you know, stance that I truly, truly believe everyone is more than meets the eye. And we all deserve a chance to express ourselves and, and be accepted. And so I think a lot of it comes from what I look like, who I am, what spaces I get to travel in. And then, of course, my, my family. You know, you've really built an interesting career. And after college, you mentioned this, that you were manager for, the, for a band. And then you and your husband were worship leaders at various churches. How has faith influenced your career and your approach to music as you were raised in the Church of God in Christ Church, which is known for its gospel music? Yeah, so it was really great. It was probably one of the, it's still one of the funniest things about my relationship right now that I, you know, I am married to a white male who was raised in Assemblies of God, which is also pretty charismatic but falls rules. And I was raised Kojic, which is, you know, you would come in and everything would be where the spirit led. I'm doing air quotes there. And so you never knew how long or what day you would leave or, you know, what day you arrived. It was just like a whole mesh of feelings, a lot of feelings. And there were no, I I didn't know about like sheet music and I didn't know about arrangements and harmonies or all these structural elements to music. Really how I was raised was feeling and and fullness, you know, like truly filling out a space um, and to the point of movement, you know, like that was the point of, of music uh, in the church that I was raised in. It was, it was to move you. And so once I got together with my now husband, I would hear him sing the same songs. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so boring. I can't believe this is the same song you're singing right now. Have you ever heard a black choir sing this song. So it's been a lot of education both ways. And then also realizing from him, him teaching me who the songwriters of those songs were and who's actually what we now uh, try and unpack and talk a lot about is who is actually making the money from this music when the labor maybe is being usually done by the black church because they can make the song sound better. Uh, nine out of 10 times. So maybe they will give the song legs and longevity and legacy, but they are never receiving the in perpetuity income received from those songs that the songwriters are receiving. So we've done a lot of work to demystify that really working in spaces where people are willing to bridge that conversation and talk about how specifically black and white communities in Christian churches can share power and really talk about who the songwriters are and who should be receiving money for their labor um, and for their work. So that's something that's been on my heart, very interesting. And then I would say faith overall for us um, has just been almost like a, a gateway, a stabilizing door where we have something to be grounded on and something we believe in. And we just truly believe that our work, I'll speak for myself, but I truly believe my work is is part of a, a greater conversation. And going back to that point of access and equity for all people, that goes to me way beyond a religion and a sect. You know, that's that's the truth of humanity. And so for me, my faith is is large. And I hope encompasses all people and tells them there's something to their story that's worth telling. I love hearing about your upbringing and your faith. I was raised in a conservative Catholic 
household. Um, went to Catholic school for 12 years. And it's funny to hear about your, your not knowing what church is going to be like. It's all about feelings where Catholic, it's like you're here on this time. You stand yeah. at this point. You sit at this point. You say right. this at this point. Kind of loses the faith part component of it because you're so obsessed with the the, uh, the structure part of it. Yeah. So to dive right into music because we talked about it a little bit. The music industry seems to be changing all the time. You know, I grew up, I'm older than you are. I grew up in the time of CDs and, and Napster. And then from there, we went to iTunes and now streaming seems to be where it's at. Where do you think the music in- industry is now? And how have these changes impacted artists and how you manage them? The music industry right now, I think, is in a renaissance. I think it is evolving, not different. I don't think this is anything we haven't seen before. I think this is a new technology, just like you're describing, whether that was, you know, when we went from records, when we went from records, even just to a tape, the cassette, I mean, that's probably this, I would say the similar amount of crazy wild west we're feeling currently, where like currency is upended, the way that you chart is upended, you know, like all these markers we had with records, you could go platinum, like you could physically, you know, know the numbers to take to get to go platinum. And I don't know if people know this, but when you go platinum nowadays, it's not the same amount of numbers that it was before, because it's impossible. So what we've had to do is restructure the way that we account for success. And to me, that's just nothing new. You know, success is a made up construct. It's always evolving and it's always elusive, right? So that's why we as artists keep working. But I think to me, it's an exciting time. It's really unknown to me. What's the most destabilizing is the currency element is like very similar when they went from the record player to the cassette player. Everyone was like, what? How are we ever going to make money off of this? I think we all feel the same way. NFTs seem intriguing. Blockchain, of course, is definitely going to be here to stay. But how does it all work? What are the economics? And for me, on the side of an indie artist, do we have an audience that cares enough to purchase an NFT to understand the worth of that? Something that's completely intangible and on the internet, you know, which is the opposite of what we hope as indie artists to to translate, which is we want to give that tangible feeling that you've bought into something, you're with us, you belong to us, we see you, you see us. So I think there's a lot of missing elements to the music industry right now that haven't yet been made known that I think are going to be really exciting times for people to forge and try on their own. And then that's just one element. I think the second element is the performance element. So touring is just now coming back. Um, Touring tickets are so outrageous. I don't know if you've seen ticket prices to to concerts now. They're so ridiculous because everyone's making up for a lot of losses. Venues are making up for losses. And then everything in general is more expensive. So I think that's also going to change. And I don't, again, I don't think it's in a bad way, but I think people will be really selective. Like I'm going to go to four shows this year and really show my loyalty to, to people and brands and bands that have cared for me during this time. And I think that that's how it's going to be. You know, I think we're going to go back to the roots of music where we have true, true, true fans. And then streaming to me is kind of just like a wash. It's just all about, you know, streaming is just radio. And for indie artists, we make half pennies on the, on the stream and going viral is tough and getting playlisted is tough. It's a lot of investment to hopefully 
break. And I would say what I'm more excited about are these new technologies. I'm really excited about streaming that leads to sync and TV, which is what we focus on. So I'm excited about how the technology is leveraging music more than ever. And then I'm excited to see how performance is going to evolve. In January 2020, right before we all went into lockdown, is when you launched Loretta Records. I know it must have been an incredible shock to go from the excitement of a launch to two months later, being locked down, not being able to leave your house. And the goal was to connect artists to television and film licensing. Why did you feel it was important to start Loretta in the first place? And how do you see yourselves operating differently than other labels? I felt like it was important for me to start Loretta Records because I saw a gap in conversation, mostly in education. You know, a lot of artists feel like either they have to tour or they have to get big on some kind of playlist. And that's the only way to make money. And there is this really strong third element that just feels really, I don't want to say exclusive, but it is. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to use the word it's exclusive, you know? Um, So TV and film sync licensing Um, synchronization licensing is really exclusive. It's a small crowd. They keep the doors pretty tight and it's for a reason. You know, they go through a lot of music. There's a lot of legality to having your music played. So it has to go through the right systems and channels. And then finally it's exclusive because it moves very fast. It's a really, really, really fast moving. And if you've known anyone or talked to anyone in TV and film, Um, On the production side, it's the same. You know, it moves so fast. So I wanted to break down this barrier for artists, especially specifically a few indie artists that I love here locally in Los Angeles County that I really wanted to give opportunity to to educate them on this third avenue of income and see if they have what it takes to really break that avenue. It takes connections and contacts. And so I'm using and leveraging everything I have to get artists music placed nationally. And I think that's what makes us the most different here at Loretta Records is that we're aiming to create a sustainable income. And so that's asking an artist to trust me long term. This is not a short term turnaround. This is not you're going to get rich and viral. This is nothing like that. What I'm asking for them is time, dedication, work, proven product, really taking it all the way through three or five years before we get something that's lucrative and consistent for them and their family. Your view has been that TV and film and maybe YouTube as well um, are the new radio for music. That's kind of what you've been quoted saying. And this is a really interesting take on kind of where the industry is now. Can you talk a little bit more about how this radio has come to be and Do you think these outlets are challenging how we traditionally hear and consume music? Yes, this is a great two-part question. I truly believe that TV and film synchronization and licensing is the new radio because people don't listen to the radio in their car. People actually watch TV in their car now. You watch TV on the airplane, you watch TV when you're on the train, on the bus, you know, and of course at home. I mean, people are constantly consuming television. All the time. Movies, I would say not so much, but I think they're also going to have their own resurgence. But especially in the last three years when our attention spans and our emotions are so uh, fickle, (laughs) short, fatigued, burnt out, all we want to do is just watch mindless TV. Thank you, Netflix. So the issue there, though, the inverse of what you're saying, how does this affect how we consume 
music is that it makes the arty shows like euphoria's anything really on hbo is tasteful in music insecure did an incredible job atlanta um there's a few shows that have brought a about the cream of the crop and they've broken artists, which is a really new concept in the last five years that you would really break artists from a TV show. You know, Grey's Anatomy was kind of the first one to do that. Um, Garden State, when you're coming to a movie where you would have to put the music with the visual and you'd be like, you cannot talk about Garden State without talking about the, part, the, the soundtrack. So that was the, the start the money was starting to come. Then the money really got there because brands saw they could attach their name to the music that was being broken. So there's a lot more money involved now. But I would say in the last five years, you can actually break an artist through a TV premiere of their song in a show that is respected and sought after. The other side of that is that since there is so much TV and so much uh, music needed for all of those shows is the taste is so low. The quality is low. You know, that's, I think, the biggest bummer. There's really no checks and balances of quality, of care. Is it a real artist? Is it a super band? Is it a fake project? No one cares. So there's like a certain tier of um, indigestion that we're getting to music. And so I would say that's kind of the pros and cons of what's happening with this industry. But you've placed over more than more than 50 songs across multiple media channels. What is the process like to match your artist with the right medium? And with that question, I, I had a couple of things I was thinking about. One is that I'm a big soundtrack person. I, I always have been both instrumental, but also, like you said, like the Garden State soundtrack. Like you, you watch a movie or you listen to a show and you're like, oh, these are great artists. I'd like to have them all together. I'm going to buy the soundtrack. And you learn about bands that way. You know, I think about the ability of the right song to really make a moment and a scene in a show or a movie. And then conversely, the wrong song will just ruin it. There was a romantic comedy a couple of years ago, well, many years ago now, I'm going to date myself, called The Holiday. And I don't know if you have the same opinion, but I thought the music was completely off. And then any Cameron Crowe movie, the music is is another actor in the actual movie. 100%, um, yeah. So we see the, the power of the music to influence the movie and vice versa. Yeah. So what's the process like for mixing or matching the right music to the right scene there's a few different layers to what you're saying because yes there is sorry you know no no it's great it's a great conversation it's exciting because i think there's one layer that you have to anticipate so like there's the future you have to anticipate for instance like what's happening right now with blm and lgbtq stuff finally being accepted finally being what people want finally being asked at the forefront. What's amazing is that I think finally now those artists where we used to maybe not hide, but we'd be like, yeah, this is a black artist. Yeah, this is a queer artist. We wouldn't like come out with that in front. Now it has been so excited to celebrate people's identities with their sound of music. So that's something anticipatory that now we are gearing up and re rebranding and reassociating people so they understand that. At the same time, finally, directors, finally, showrunners, finally, music supervisors care about those things and want to put money where their mouth is on those things. And it's really, really, really exciting. I would say people like Shonda Rhimes have really broken through this. 
even a lot of shows on Freeform, CW, you know, the younger teen shows, because this is what teens care about. They've actually pushed a lot of our agendas forward that we want to be seen. We want to be heard as an artist for our whole selves. And it's pushed and broken, I think, a lot more people than than we can even account for right now. So I think that that's a really beautiful part. The next part of the process is really making sure our artist is being true to themselves. I just don't want any artist to make music that they're embarrassed by, which is really easy to do with TV and film because it's kind of grimy is the word I'm going to use. At the end of the day, you could just make 10 songs and they could all make money and you could be like, I don't want anyone to know I made these. So our work as a label is really to find that common ground of like, this is who you are. This is your sound. This company has already said they're in make 10 more of these like you. And so that's kind of where we're trying to meet and match our artists. It's not easy. We're definitely trying to strike a balance between what is going to make money and what is going to be true to themselves. It's a fine dance that we are kind of trying to to play right now. So definitely check back with me. But we're at the beginning of this idea Very cool. Well, Loretta is a Los Angeles-based label. Because you're a Pasadena resident, we'll call it a Pasadena-based label. And most of your artists are from California. Um, I was looking through the list and, you know, you and Jordan are from Central California. Keisha Chantrell is from Monterey Bay. Revel Day is a Californian. And I I believe Haley Bowers is from LA. Yep. Revel and Haley are all, and we we have two new artists as well, Caroline and Sasha. They're all LA- based, born and raised um, LA County. So they know this territory. They know the LA sound. There's a little bit of grit and soul and almost, I want to say like folk and, and world music within all of them because that's Los Angeles. So you think that that is LA's distinctive sound? I think we all somehow come out pop for better or for worse. But I think in the undertone of it, we have an incredible gifting here in Los Angeles for bringing together like a Latin undertone with some folk music. And, you know, like we do the blend incredibly well here in LA because people get to be true themselves. I think rock music is still alive here, but it always sounds pop adjacent or pop iced. I would say I'm saying like an icing, you know, we can't seem to get away from that. And that might just be because we are sisters to the TV and film industry here in LA. Was there a particular sound that you wanted Loretta to have? From what I can hear, there's a lot of soul. Was there a particular sound that you were kind of targeting? Yes, to soul. I get that a lot. That's definitely me, (laughs) my taste. But I would say 100% it needs to be timeless. You know, I, I just believe in timeless music. I believe in themes that carry all the time. Um, you know, it's not just about that breakup and loneliness. It's about the fact that everyone at some point feels lonely and that's okay. You know, and I, I just work really hard with our artists to try and find that the truest story is usually the most universal story. And really, you know, through workshops around songwriting, production, working with other incredible producers here in LA, I'm really asking the artists to be their most true selves. You've described LA as a very multicultural place, but it's a fairly segregated city. Do you think this applies to our music as well? And can music be a force to try to bring people together from different areas and backgrounds? I'm not talking about the white kids from La Cunada that are listening to Dr. Dre thinking that the chronic embodies their their life story. But it, can, can music bring people together, do you think, 
to kind of bridge some of these differences? You know, James, I really hope so. I really, really, really hope so. LA is so segregated. You know, little Tokyo barely steps foot over into Chinatown, barely steps over into little Armenia. You know, like our food is even segregated, um, let alone where we live. And I will say the music venues are really segregated. You know, for instance, I won't name them, but, you know, there's a few hot spots where as an indie artist, you are trying to get on that bill. And those venues are predominantly white. And I would say 90% white, the first couple four I'm thinking of. And you really only see people of color coming out of those spaces when they chart, when they're at a certain level. Whereas you, your counterpart, if they're white, they don't have to be at a certain level. And so it's, it's really uphill. It's really, really uphill. I would say if you go more inland, it's a lot more diverse because it has to be. You know, it, I'm talking like Promota and Riverside and those kind of venues. But yeah, I would say Hollywood, you know, even, you know, the, the little venues in Silver Lake and Highland Park, those kind, they're still predominantly white. They still predominantly play pop and rock music. And I would say it's hard to piece together a full night's tour here. You know, um, I've even worked with a jazz artist before and even those venues really distinctly, it's either black jazz or, you know, not. And I don't know the answer. I'm not, and you know, in, in tuned enough. All I can say is I hope it's a place of change, and I'll definitely be going to all these venues with our artists, who are predominantly people of color or from a you know marginalized community. So I I know that we'll keep showing up, and I think what happens is like you have to bring your fans, you know, and show them the worth. And so that's a lot of pressure, but I, I think it's something as a label we want to support and show LA we can do. And then the last thing we're doing as a label is just trying to find unconventional spaces that aren't those dominated spaces, you know, and trying to create new venues where we don't have to play by those rules. Now you've shared that the music industry is like a game of high stakes poker and that things have to land at the right place and at the right time. But I think about rocking around the Christmas tree by Brenda Lee and how it came out in 58, got no traction. They re-released it in 59, no traction, and then brought it back in 1960 when Brenda actually had a following and then it took off. You have to have the right artist at the right time with the right audience. So, you know, having released more than 20 songs in 2021 during a really difficult year, how does Loretta create that kind of moment for its artists? It's a great question. I think a lot of patience and preparation. You know, when I'm talking about high stakes poker, the people who come to those tables aren't flippant. They have studied. They've studied their their partners. They've studied the house that they're going to play at or the hand that's going to be dealt them. They know the numbers of equations that can be played. They are strategic. They are, you know, killer instincts, but a lot of patience and a lot of preparation. And so that is what I'm hoping to offer this label, especially with 10 years in the industry. I've seen the patience it takes and I know what comes in time. You know, like I know something comes in time without a doubt. So I'm not, I'm not concerned. I just want to make sure that when we do say yes at that moment, it's the right yes for the artist as well. Because there's a lot of, let's see, there's a lot of like freeway exits along the journey you could take to shortcut a lot of things. And that's totally fine. There's no judgment, but it does mean you're not still on that one journey. 
And so I think for a lot of artists, whether they need to pay their bills, whether they're fed up, the patience is run thin, they don't want to put in the preparation, they take a lot of shortcuts. That's totally cool. That's just not what I'm into. And I'm really hoping to celebrate artists at the right time to be able to say the right yes and really cheer them on for, again, a sustainable living income. In this episode, we talk about the arts and sustainability. So I thought this would be a great time to talk about the show's sponsor, Zencaster. I haven't really pursued advertising because I didn't want to recommend something that I didn't use for myself. After launching this podcast in October of 2020, I knew that I needed a tool to record the show that would be easy for both myself and my guests. I also wanted a tool that had great audio quality. So I'm excited to share that the podcast tool that I've used since the early days of the show, Zencaster, has become a sponsor. Not only does Zencaster provide studio quality sound, but it also features awesome HD video recordings if you want to upload shows to YouTube or someplace else. What I love most about Zencaster is that it records separate audio and video tracks for me and my guests, so the editing process is a lot more customized. Plus, they're secured cloud backup, so you never lose your interviews, post-production is a simple click away, and a transcript is even auto-generated. It's super easy to use. There's nothing to download. My guests just click on the link and we start recording. Go to zencaster.com slash pricing and enter promo code thecrowncitypod to get 30% off your first three months with a pro account. You'll also get a 14-day free trial. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com slash pricing, promo code thecrowncitypod. Zencaster is the modern web-based solution for the everyday and professional podcaster, and I'm proud to have them as a sponsor. Now back to the show. One of the highlights of 2021 for for Loretta was you had an in-person event in November that showcased your artists as well as provide a platform for special guests. You had a mariachi band, a local mariachi band, for example. A really special element of music is hearing it in person. I think we've, we've talked about it a little bit and seeing that music with a group of people it really makes the sound come alive and creates an experience. How do you think COVID has impacted how we think of in-person events? And what are Loretta's plans as we can continue to open up? I think COVID has definitely changed the way that we do events. Even that event, I have to say, had uh, so many uh, snags because of COVID. It was We weren't really out yet in LA. I still had a lot of restrictions that people didn't know. We, we personally didn't know what it would look like in a live space. And I've hosted so many events over the last 10 years. And I would say that was probably one of my most difficult to put on because of the extenuating circumstances of COVID. And I think that we are going to feel that for the next couple of years. That no one's really going to feel at full capacity of what they wanted to do or what they had imagined, but just lowering our expectations and going back to the root cause of why we're even together, which is to belong and, and to create space of belonging. So I think that's going to be one of the big takeaways with getting together. And then as a label, I think we just want to do intentional events. You know, like I don't want to do an event just to do one. They need to be intentional. We have to have something to say and we want to do it in community with people here in Los Angeles. Loretta is part of the Black Independent Music Accelerator Initiative that seeks to fight for social and economic justice within the music industry itself. 
How important is it to be part of this effort to diversify indie music? It's huge. It's a huge part. I joined it. And I just finished my one-year um, fellowship program with... It was found, founded by A2IM out in New York. And it was instrumental. I honestly didn't think people like me existed, you know, which is just a small mindset for me to have. I know, don't, don't judge me. But I really was like, there's no one who looks like me or talks like me or wants to do the same things as me or wants to be in power at my age. And it was all demystified through that program. And it was so reassuring to just meet other people in their 30s, 40s, which is young career to me and still really figuring out who they want to be in this industry and naming that they want to be important and influential and have a legacy of impacting the music industry. So it was just uh, like almost like a warm blanket. You know, I was like, oh my God, we're all here. Like this is going to be okay. And then at the same time, it was a huge kick in the pants because everyone's doing incredible things, working really hard, hustling. And so it was kind of lit a lot of fires. Also, again, what I said at the beginning, that no one approaches the music business the same way. So we could all have the same title and we were all doing different things. Even I think there was a maybe like six to 10 different labels represented and we all had different deals. Like even that alone shows you how different the music industry is now. And especially the indie sector, we are all figuring out what works for us and trying to make competitive deals that work for our area of expertise, which is not how the industry was formed, you know, a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, even. So it's a really, really exciting time. Do you think your size allows you more flexibility to take a more active role in social justice and other movements, whereas like other labels would be so afraid to even kind of engage in those conversations? No, I don't think so. And if someone's using that for an excuse, I think it's complete BS. Yeah, no, I don't think that that's a reason. Size should not matter. It seems like you've created a real family at Loretta with the artists that you've partnered with. What do you think the artists that you work with say about you personally and your values as the head of the label? It's a great question, man. What I hope they feel is someone with integrity and truth and a lot of patience. I hope that they see someone with a lot of patience, someone who is a a forever lifelong learner and someone passionate about them. You know, I, I know my entire catalog of music. I could tell you every song title and everything about it. I work really hard to get to know everyone's music. And then hopefully in turn, our clients see that passion come through in every conversation I have. And then the artists see that through, I hope, monetary value and sustainability for their family. So how do you go about attracting artists and what are you looking for in terms of their sound, but then more importantly, them as people? I would say I've had, not luck, (laughs) I've had success staying in my network right now. You know, I'm really trying to find people that I know. This relationship is almost close to marriage. You know, we sign a five, eight, 10 page contract for five years right now. It's it's a big deal. Probably more committed than marriage (laughs) because you're not signing a year term uh, in your marriage. You're just hoping for forever. And there it's really personal. So I'm asking people to sacrifice things or to double down on things. And so right now I'm really staying within my network of people. I know I'm looking for really hard workers 
That's my number one thing I'm looking for. I'm looking for people ready to step up and put the time in. I'm looking for people who know their sound. I'm not looking to break the next Taylor Swift, who's like, maybe I'm country. No, I could go pop. You know, I'm not interested in anything like that. This is really about established artists. They know their music. They know their voice. They know their instrument. They can perform because it's in them. This is all that they know how to do live, breathe, work music. And so that's really who I'm looking for at the core. You know, you've recently celebrated your second year anniversary. And in the last two years, you know, music has been hit hard because of the artists have been unable to tour, but it's also sprouted creativity. What advice would you share with someone that wanted to break into music, artist management, or even start their own label? I would say shadow the people you consider heroes or sheroes, slide into their DMs. It's of the best time to get to talk to people right now. We're all online. We really, really are. And people want to hear from this next generation. I would say reach out, send your resume, show up. I don't always say work for free, but you know, if there's some kind of internship or even just a couple meetings that you could take, you know, really try to just be where you want to be and stop talking about it. You know, just go insert yourself, get to know what that person's doing. And I'm saying artist to artist too. This isn't just on the business side. Um, if you're seeing a successful artist and maybe you're like two people away from knowing them, go ahead and throw an ask out, take them to lunch, take them to coffee and ask them, how did you do it? How did you get successful? How are you paying your bills? Are you paying your bills from music? There should be no questions off the table if if as indie artists, we want to see other indie artists grow and thrive and all tides rise together, right? So we have to be able to have these hard conversations or I would say uncomfortable ones to help further us all along. And I would say specifically women in music business or on the artist side, if you have not sat down with other successful women and asked them how they're paying their bills, how they're making money, what their pay rate is, what's their day rate, then you are doing yourself a disservice and probably underselling yourself, I'm just going to assume. So it's really time for people to ask those questions. Get on the floor. Like, don't keep talking about it. Just insert yourself. When you think about the next five years, the next 10 years and beyond, what is your vision for, for the future? And what role do you see you and Loretta Records playing in the music industry? Let's see. The next five, 10 years in the music industry, I see... Probably a few more technologies. We'll see if Spotify can make it through. Um, there might be another turn of that. I see the internet. When I say the internet, it's like the open source of the internet being a better tool and being more reasonable uh, for all ages to approach, I think. So I think that that should be something interesting. I think authenticity is still going to be the number one currency to winning in music. And I would say I want Loretta Records to be stable. I want us to be a reputable name here in Los Angeles, definitely in Pasadena. I want people to feel the impact of our artists doing well. And that means that we have to do a photo shoot in downtown Pasadena and hire local artists and local contractors and commercial real estate people like you, James. I just want to see all, all of our economies grow together. Um, I want to see artists taken serious, that we do have a stake in the claim and that the world and our communities are more successful when artists are more successful. And so those are kind of my hopes 
and dreams. And then there's a lot of things I got to do to get there. Ah, so I'll just be working. Well, on that note, we'll kind of start wrapping up our conversation so we can all go back to, to work. But I have a couple of fun questions to close. Not only does your husband, Jordan, have a, a new album out, which I recommend everyone to, to buy, but you're also an actual track on the album. So what was that like to be the, the head of the label, but also to have your voice on one of the tracks? Nerve-wracking. It, it was so awful. I, <laughs> I love why I am running a label is because I want to be behind the scenes. I love being hidden, uh, you know, um, but it is his story to tell. And so, yes, he asked my permission. I didn't know he even saved that voice memo. It's just like this one minute voice memo. I don't even know if it's a minute. Um, I didn't know he saved it. It was a really important time in, in our relationship. And we have just done an incredibly great job, I think, of compartmentalizing our relationship and then our partnership as, as teammates. And I felt like a lot of pride that we have worked really hard to keep that relationship so that there is moments of intimacy and that so much so that it's part of his story he needs to tell. And I felt very honored and privileged and I hated it. <laughs> I don't like the sound of my own voice. I mean, I can barely re-listen to the podcast I, I guessed on. I was just very honored and, and felt very loved by him. But I would say the album as a whole, I got it. Like I got why he needed to put that on there once I listened to the album as a whole and the story he was trying to tell. And I thought he did a very successful job of, of doing that. So I will sacrifice my uh, my privacy. That's a good sacrifice. Okay. Well, like I was saying, I have been listening to the album in the car with my kids, along with Hummingbird, which I cannot stop listening to. Yeah. So beautiful. So beautiful. Yes. My kingship. Yes. And I'll put links to everything in the show notes and everything like that. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. I try to sneak it in, sneak those songs in and, and albums in between the Encanto soundtrack and request for my kids to play the Star Wars soundtrack, which is, is very popular in my household currently. That's great. They have great taste. They do have great taste. Yes. They're very into John Williams. I see that. So fun questions to close. Best concert you've ever been to and why? Great question. Oh my gosh. Jeez. Jeez Louise. Do you need a minute? I got a, I got my story. Uh, you already know yours? I had the privilege of coming up with the questions. I, I'll say this and then I'll let you think about it. So, uh, Okay, you, already, you have one just to name one? I don't even, okay. Yeah, I know. It's hard to name one. But my, my most memorable concert I've been to is when I was in college. And this was in 20, this is about 2000, 2001. No one really knew what was going on in terms of the internet and information. And my friend and I took... Uh, the subway to Maryland from DC because I, I got a lead on a show at an Episcopalian church hall and it was Vagrant Records tour back in the day with Dashboard Confessional and the Anniversary and wow. all these other indie groups that kind of blew yep. up a couple years later. I'm walking to this church. I'm like, am I walking to a, a show? Am I walking to a church? I have no idea what I'm going to encounter, but it's probably the most fun because it was such an unknown that's my favorite concert story. Wow. And to hear both of those bands, they're so passionate. Yeah, Dashboard, the way that he has researched himself is incredible. I actually like his new music, which I thought I would not like. But he he does not age also. He's really like Dorian Gray, like just stuck. He's beautiful. Vocally talented. I mean, that to see that in 2001 would have been phenomenal. Because also, we didn't really know what he was capable of and... 
Wow, that is cool. Okay. I would say if I go with most surprising, kind of what you're saying, most surprising, we had a friend who was over and she was like, hey, I have these tickets to go see Hozier. You know, do you and Jordan want to go tonight? Uh, you know, my partner and I can't go. Jordan and I had no idea who it was other than the Take Me to Church song, which is not my, to, to be honest, not my vibe. But it was at the Troubadour. So that's my favorite venue in LA. So I was like, well, I'm never not going to take free tickets to go to the Troubadour. Let's just go. We can see. She ended up having these like front row standing room only tickets. Like they were very good. It was sold out. I had no idea. And he is a savant. I don't know if you've seen him live. He's also seven feet tall, 100 pounds, basically. He plays with an all-female band, and he could sing. Talk about an Episcopalian church. Like, he could sing and blow out, like, stained glass window. Like, I just had no idea. I will say, honestly, his album is actually underwhelming to who the person is in real life. Like, I think they must have popped it, you know, to, like, make it radio-friendly. But him live, I was, like taken aback he he is phenomenally talented i've never really seen someone like that heard someone like that it was way less pop live it was way more rock and folk and um incredible storyteller also at the cutting edge of activism and um with his with his songs and his music videos and who he stands up for so the crowd was incredibly diverse which i also wasn't expecting and then finally everyone knew every single word of all of his songs so then you just feel like a dumb idiot. I'm like, okay, so I'm, I missed this boat. I had no idea. But even actually, to be honest, I hope he doesn't hear this, but like going back and listening to his albums, they're not as great as him live. Like him live, it was something to see. It was, it was like I had witnessed just um, a, rare, a rare human being and, and he was just living his truth. The most fun concert definitely has to be Bruno Mars. You know, if anyone gets a chance ever to see him, that will change your life. It's, he is our Michael Jackson, and I am so thankful for him every day. Let's see. I don't know. So, so many incredible concerts. I got to see Swell Season right after their movie came out, and they were still a couple. And so there was like a lot of romance on stage, and that was just phenomenal. Uh, just, I don't know. I've, I've seen a lot of good, a lot of incredibly great musicians. Well, you've answered my question in terms of the, your favorite music venue, and you said the Troubadour which I would agree with. Is that your favorite venue in LA or just in general? Um, that's my favorite music venue in LA. I would say um, I've had the pleasure of going to a lot of venues in London, in Paris. And I would say that they do an incredible job at a great intimate space where it feels like a pub flipped upside down kind of with a church vibe. And, you know, like just that ethereal feeling in that sense. I love Europe venues. Final question before we close out our conversation. What are you listening to right now and what should we be listening to in general? I'm listening to Nas's new album. I also have a toddler, so I'm listening to Lego movie. I don't know. It's embarrassing. Let's see. And then I usually just go back to things that make me feel seen and, and you know, of my time in the height of music for me, which is usually like Feist, Kings Leon, you know, showing my millennial age those kind of albums when they, when a full album was still a, a, a beautiful sight to, to behold, you know, I would agree with that. You know, I'm at a point where the artists that I listened to in my twenties are now doing reunion tours because they're all in their forties yeah. and fifties. Yeah. And it's kind of a sad, sad state of affairs. I know. 
you know what? Kudos to them. You know, like at least you're not going to the '90s boy band reunion tours. This is true. You're, well, sometimes too, you're like, don't mess with my memories. You know, like I saw Lauren Hill live, which is one of those albums too, where you just you need it, you love it. It's like part of your blood. And I saw Lauren Hill live at the Bowl, and it was it was really underwhelming. Yeah, just made me made me sad. Sometimes the nostalgic stuff you gotta you gotta you can't mess with. Just leave it, leave it there. Yes, it has to just sit. Yeah, served its purpose. It has, it has definitely. So with that, thank you so much for being a great part of Pasadena for supporting artists and their music in our community and for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much, James. I'm so privileged to be here and I'm really happy that you're hosting space for all the wonderful people of Pasadena. I'm, you know, I'm always impressed by how much happens here. So I'm, I'm happy to learn more. My many thanks to Katrina for coming on the show. For more information about Loretta Records, please visit them at LorettaRecords.com and please support and follow them on not only Instagram, but all social media platforms. In addition, you can listen to the work of their emerging artists on Spotify and SoundCloud. Music is such an important part of our lives. It helps give our lives depth, makes us dance, puts a smile on our faces, and sometimes even brings a tear to our eyes. Loretta Records is at the forefront of what I hope will be the future of the music industry. A record label that cares and empowers its artists so that they don't just explode and burn out, but shine for years to come. I, for one, will be singing along. Finally, my many thanks to Loretta Records' Chris Rondina for all his help coordinating this recording. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. The podcast can be found on most platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, among many others. Please consider supporting the show by rating and reviewing it, or through direct sponsorship or Patreon. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, stay engaged, and as always, see you around town.